Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the Elsian Legal Podcast. We'll bring you expert views and analysis of legal aspects of transfer pricing compliance. As always, our focus is on real-world, practical insights that you can apply in your everyday work. In this episode, we talk to Elsian Legal's co-founder, Paul Sutton, about target margin arrangements. We look at some of the options when writing the legal documentation, some things that can go wrong, and perhaps most importantly, how to stop that from happening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Paul, welcome. Uh, you're here to discuss uh, target margin arrangements, and uh, there's a, a lot to discuss in there, so let's get started. Now, I know that um, target margin arrangements are uh, used uh, very often, and um, many of our listeners will be familiar with them, but for those that aren't, perhaps you could tell us some of the situations in which target target margin arrangements are most often used. Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone who's coming uh, and listening from a legal background as opposed to a TP background, um, the classic situation for target margin arrangements would be um, so-called limited risk distribution structures. Um, so that's where within the group, there's a principal, uh, maybe the parent entity, um, and one or more local distributors who are responsible for distributing the goods or the software or whatever in their local markets. Um, and the arrangement is such that those local distributors are really carrying out um, limited functions on the basis that the real decision making happens at the head office, as it were. And also the, those local uh, distributors are generally intended to carry limited risk. Um, and so often the arrangement or the intention is that those distributors will earn a relatively modest margin on that activity. So that may look something like a net operating margin of 5% or 6% or, or something like that, as opposed to distributors who are entirely independent, full risk, and their, their target or their actual margins may range from nothing or, or negative to 30% or 40%. So that's that's the kind of scenario that we're often talking about here. And um, you wrote a, a blog about these sorts of arrangements recently, and the key uh, point there was that there are uh, fundamentally a choice of two different ways to structure the pricing clause uh, in the intercompany agreement. Tell us more about that. What are those two options? Yeah, ab absolutely. So, so, so when it comes down to it from a legal perspective, obviously, if you're coming from a legal background, it's all about legal certainty when you're drafting agreements. So it's pretty much ingrained in lawyers that whatever you're preparing needs to have legal certainty. It needs to be something that is clear and unambiguous. So what does that mean when you're applying that to this kind of arrangement? Um, so the binary options here are option one, the target margin is actually hardwired into the agreement. So that can mean that for something like a software distributor, the end result is actually fixed. So that's the, the, the amount that the distributor pays to the principal for the software um, is such amount as leaves the distributor with a specified net operating margin. So basically, any profit above that gets creamed off, if you like, and repatriated to the principal, often the software owner. Um, and so the the distributor is left with that that amount. So that is actually baked into, into the agreement and is in a legally binding form, which actually specifies that percentage, the, the, the net operating margin, for example. Um, a variant of that would be, um, for example, if it's physical products, 
um, you may specify the margin in terms of a range. So that's, you might have a specify in the agreements, the bottom end of the range, the top ends of the range. And you might say that if the outcome of the distributor in a particular year is above the top of the range or above that, that, that top level, then that excess gets repatriated to the, to the principal. So, so that's, again, it's, it's a hardwired uh, true up or true down mechanism. And, and similarly, at the bottom ends, you may have a provision saying that, that that lower end of the range is guaranteed. So there's actually a, some kind of support payment from the principal to actually top up the results of, of the distributor. So that's, that's option one, which is hardwired into the agreement in a legally binding form. Okay. Option two um, would be where, um, in terms of the contractual mechanics of the distribution agreement, it's not baked in and you don't have that, that hardwired true up or true down mechanism. Um, the pricing as between principal and distributor may be fixed in some other way, for example, by reference to the list prices of, of the of the principal uh, from time to time, there may be a specified discount. The agreement may refer to the intention of the parties that this level of pricing is intended to result in an outcome for the distributor within a specified range, but there's no legally binding hardwired provision that actually guarantees that. Um, for for the distributor. So basically, you have those two binary options when it comes to actually drafting the agreements. So those two options obviously are quite different. How would someone choose which one to use? What are the pros and cons of each? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's a really good question. It's it's a hard question to answer because you need to go back to first principles in, in deciding, well, what are the transfer pricing intentions? How do you, how do you marry that or match that with the commercial intentions of of the group generally um so if the if the intention is is to hardwire the results and and to de-risk the the distributor absolutely from market risks that means that it needs to have a legally binding right of recourse against the principal and that means that if there is for example a loss situation uh, for that distributor then um, and and if that, in theory, were to result in insolvency situation, then the principal would actually have a legally binding obligation to pay that amount. So you're losing the benefit of being able to ring, ring fence commercial risks in a separate legal entity. So um, when you're designing the overall arrangements, the intercompany transactions, as we all know, it's not just about transfer pricing. It's also about, well, what is the overall commercial intention for the group? How does it work from a customs perspective? How does it work for a VAT perspective? And we're really taking a holistic um, point of view. Um, so that that's that's why I can't really give you a, a clear answer to that question because you know you need to look at that in 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 the round. However, the the other aspect that is a lot more clear cut is the requirement to uh, take a kind of retrospective look back on on this. So. In other words, you are you are looking from a TP perspective, you're thinking about, well, what do you want to be able to say in your transfer pricing documentation after the events? So in, in the tax returns or as part of the, the tax documentation that you file after the year has, has finished, uh -huh. um, what statements do you want to be able to make in that documentation, for example, um, uh, as to which entity 
does or does not bear credit risk or market risk. And then you're working backwards from that to make sure that those statements are actually true and were borne out, were actually implemented in the agreement concerned. So that means that if in the TP filings, you want to be able to say things like um, the distributor was guaranteed a certain minimum return, then in order for that to be true, it needs to have been implemented in a hardwired guarantee in the intercompany agreements uh, concerned. So, so that, that's that's the bottom line here. I think one aspect of that that may surprise some people is you're talking about the, the legal perspective and the TP perspective and, and the fact that you can actually look at the same uh, transaction from those two different perspectives and see slightly different things. I think a lot of people would assume that the legal perspective and the TP perspective are fundamentally similar. Yeah, I, th I think th this this is a classic thing that we come across time and time again when we're working alongside TP advisors and, and, and corporates. Um, and this tends to be that the TP view of the world tends to be about functions, assets, risk. So, so from a functional perspective, the question that TP reports or TP policies tend to be looking at is what is the contribution that the distributor is making to the supply chain? And often that's almost expressed in the form of a, a service that the distributor is providing to the principal or, or the entrepreneur. In other words, the, the distributor is carrying out certain distribution functions, you know, certain marketing functions, um, and the beneficiary of that service is, is the principal. So if often, depending on how sophisticated the, the TP advisors are or the TP professionals are, um, if you just read the TP documentation or the TP policies alone, you might come away from it thinking, actually, well, this, is this a provision of a service by the distributor to the principal? Whereas, of course, from a legal perspective and a commercial perspective, yes, there is that, that viewpoint. But actually what's happening is the principal is selling goods, for example, if it is uh, a, a goods arrangement, um, and the distributor is reselling those those goods. So fundamentally, it's a sale and purchase arrangement, not a supply of goods. However, there are certain additional things that the principal is providing as part of the bundle, for example, head office support, license of IP, and, and so on. And there are certain commitments that the distributor is, is making as to the range of things that it's going to do, for example, promotional activity and, and, and local PR or whatever that, that is. So... Um, the view of the world can be different. And of course, part of our role or the role of anyone who is trying to legally implement transfer pricing policies and make those statements true is to really um, get to the heart of both those worlds. So is it possible to reconcile both and to produce intercompany agreements which uh, work both from a legal perspective and a TP perspective? Is that even possible? And if so, how? Um, yeah, ab absolutely it is. Um, and and it has to be possible because like it or not, um, the OECD TP guidelines in their current form, so they're currently the 2022 version of the guidelines, um, refers to the role of intercompany contracts, intercompany agreements as being one of the steps along the way of delineating the transaction and understanding the tr transaction. And the TP guidelines also refer to um, the role of agreements in allocating risk. So as, as we were discussing before, such as, as credit risk. And 
that approach would be meaningless if if somehow there was a separate TP world with its own separate agreements and 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 being like a fantasy universe, which bore no relationship to the uh, the commercial and legal reality of how the group operated or actually operates. And, and another thing that the TP guidelines is is very clear about is that you need to look at at the transaction in the context of the legal and regulatory environment that the group actually operates in. And so by hook or by crook, we need to reconcile those two worlds. And yes, it is completely possible. It's just a matter of expressing the the transaction in a way that reflects the reality. So when people get these kind of um, uh, get intercompany agreements wrong in this sort of situation, what are the main reasons that people tend to that you often see? Well, what are the main traps to avoid? Um, yeah, so I guess an, a number of things that we see. So one thing that we see is just where the group has started from fundamentally the wrong place in terms of what agreement to use as, as as the starting point and my theory is is that this is part of the communication maybe between the tax function in the corporate and the legal function and the tax uh, function says to the legal function hey please give us an, a, a distribution agreement and um the the legal people say okay here's a commercially available precedent or here's here's something that we use in our third party distributors let's use that um and they've already started on the wrong foot because third party distribution arrangements especially when it comes to target margin or limited risk um arrangements often have a, the opposite risk allocation um compared to what is intended in the in the tp policy so often we we see that happening um groups using agreements um, for a number of years, actually, which actually contradict um, the TP intentions, the TP policy. So similar to what happened, uh, for example, in the Coca-Cola case, although, of course, that wasn't a target margin, it was a kind of profit split, but it's it's a, a similar kind of scenario. So, so that, that's something that we often see happening. Um, and, and another key issue is just in the pricing clauses. Um, so um, we, I think, the view, the prevalent view 10, 15, 20 years ago was, well, let's keep things as vague as possible in the pricing. We often used to see um, clauses saying the distributor will pay, pay such price as the parties may agree from time to time, or the price payable will be in accordance with the, the group's transfer pricing policies as in place from time to time. Um, and the idea was, well, if you get it vague, if you keep it vague, then you can never be wrong. I think the overwhelming direction of recent case law over the last uh, 18, 24, 36 months particularly has has, has shown that's not going to work anymore. It needs to be a genuine agreement, you know, that the, the watchword is, is needs to be clear, unambiguous. It needs to be something where you can pick up the agreement and actually understand what it is that the parties are getting in for. So so trying to fudge the, the pricing clause is 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 not going to work. Um other things really go back to the point that intercompany agreements are not just about transfer pricing. They need to work from VAT, GST, customers perspective. So thinking through those different angles um, and making sure that they're reflected in the agreement are absolutely fundamental. Very interesting. And uh, it's interesting the point you make in the first category of examples of communication. It makes you wonder how many 
mistakes of in this area and so many others actually were just down to miscommunication everyone had the knowledge and skills that was required but the, you know the message didn't get through I, I, absolutely and and the uh w- one of the analogies that we we like to use when we're talking about things these things it's, it's a bit like when you're designing a bathroom or having a new bathroom in, installed you know you can go to the designers you can get a beautiful plan drawn up um, and uh, that's a bit like the TP policies, you know, it's it's a beautiful description of how things work. But the question is, have you actually plumbed in the, the sink and the bath and the shower? Have you actually connected up the electrics in, in a way that you don't get electrocuted when you turn on the lights and and and, and so on? So there, there, there needs to be, yes, there needs to be a coherent and beautiful plan, but it also needs to be implemented with a view to the practicality of the different um, services or functions that, that that need to work. Hence your lighthearted description of Elstian Legal's role as uh, corporate plumbers. Absolutely. We, we, we love to keep it real. And uh, lastly, uh, I'd like to try and uh, wrap these things up by asking you to give me sort of one key message to take away. And you've consistently given me at least two or three whenever I've asked <laughs> that question. So I'll just acknowledge that. And say, can you give me one or several key messages? <laughs> okay. So, so, issue? Yeah, th- thank you. So, so not to disappoint you, it, it will be two, I'm afraid, I think. <laughs> but one is is just the need for the cross-functional, holistic um, perspectives when a group is designing transfer pricing policies in, in the first place. So with a view to the commercial reality, with a view to the way that the group actually works from a legal perspective. And sometimes that's not clear. Sometimes um, groups or clients can be a bit hazy about that. So, so really applying that, that holistic um, discipline, if you like. And the second thing is, is the point about wor- working backwards from when the rubber really hits the road. So, so the pain that is really experienced is obviously at the TP audit stage, because that's the point that statements made in TP policies are going to be scrutinized on a line by line basis. And that's where the verification process needs to kick in um, in advance of of that. So um, making sure in advance that each of those individual statements as regards risk allocation, as regards return and, and pricing, are actually implemented such that they will be verified or verifiable when it comes to the audit later on down the line. Thanks very much. Well, I think you've given us a good uh, basic overview there and some uh, key things for people to take away. It's a hugely complicated issue with many sort of tangential side issues, which we probably will have to uh, ask you back to explore those at some point in the future. But uh, for now, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Yelsian Legal Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. You'll find the contact details on our website, elsianlegal.com. And you'll also find more information about the issues discussed in this episode and much else besides. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Go to your podcast provider and search for the Elsian Legal Podcast. Until next time, goodbye.